if perhaps we've never walked with you, we pray that you would reveal yourself in powerful ways. So we give you this time. We give you our hearts afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the second half of the book of Ephesians as we have just wrapped up last week, chapter 4. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're not exactly setting any speed records in this book, but there's just so much here. As we've looked at before, the first three chapters talk about what it is to be in Christ. Uh, and then the last three chapters, applying God's word, talk about what it is to have Christ in you, in me. Uh, as we've looked at that, and, and in these first three chapters, the instruction that Paul gave, uh, he talks about the riches of God's grace, the incredible inheritance that we have in Christ as his people. Uh, we've looked at the unfathomable riches of Christ and so on. Uh, just wonderful instruction from God's word. And, and as we're looking at these now, Paul has been beginning to apply these things. We looked at that through chapter four. As we've been, uh, as we're, we're heading into chapter five, I want to do a brief recap on chapter four because remember, folks, there are no chapter breaks in the original language. When this was written, it was penned as one letter to a church, uh, and, and probably actually a group of churches in the city of Ephesus because it was a large city, and, and house churches were sort of the rule of the day. So we looked at in chapter four the first study we've had. We've had a number of studies here. Uh, five in all, one that went over two Sundays, two weeks, uh, is the first, is that Paul, in the beginning of chapter four, he exhorts the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they've been given, the, the calling that they have on their lives to be people of God, to be Christians, to be uh, the church. So we looked at that. Uh, the second couple of studies after that, we looked at the giver and the gifts. We talked about the giver. We talked about Jesus himself being the head of the church as he, and in that, that he gives gifts to men and to women. We looked at the fact that he established these offices and spiritual oversight, spiritual gifts for the church. And, and that, that model from the book of Acts that we see is the same model that we use today as far as working out faith and practice. Uh, as we looked at that study, we went in and, and took an extra amount of time and looked in various parts in the New Testament and looked at spiritual giftedness. The fact that God gives gifts to all of us. All of us have at least one and nobody has all of them. <laughs> the third thing we looked at was unity. In verses 13 to 16, we looked at those things which cause us to grow in unity. And then we also took some time and looked at seven classifications for false teachers, false teaching, which was rampant in the church in, in Paul's day. It's rampant in the church today. And we do well to, to, to not fall into that group of people that have itching ears and, and heap up to ourselves teachers according to our own desires. Well, I want to find somebody that will tell me what I want to hear. We do well to allow God's word to speak to us, to address things in our lives, even when it's, especially when it's difficult, and to allow his transforming work. We looked at putting off the old man and putting on the new man in verses 17 to 24. And the reason for that is, is one is growing more corrupt. We looked at that at some length that, that we, there's no neutral. 
in God's kingdom. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. And he's saying that the old man is growing more corrupt as time goes on. And we looked at what how that works. And then we looked at also that the new man is growing in righteousness and holiness. It's not static. This is an active walk. This isn't just, I go to church on Sunday. This is my life immersed in Christ, allowing him to do the work in me that he wants to do. In our last study, we looked at the transforming power of God last week. Uh, we looked at how, as the Spirit guides us in putting on the new person, that we recognize that he's the source of the righteousness and the holiness that we walk in. We've seen that word walk throughout, that, again, not passive, but active, that we're engaged with the work of God in our hearts, in our lives, that uh, we're acquiring holiness. We are already, we've already been declared holy, folks. When we gave our lives to Christ, because of the work that Jesus did at the cross, we were declared holy. We were, we were sanctified. That's the word, uh, the Latin word for uh, sanctify for holy is sanctus. It's where we get the word sanctified. And yet we are now in this process of being sanctified. We looked at the fact that this is a response. Even though these are commands, we're going to look at that today, uh, that these are imperatives. They're not optional. <laughs> that even though that's the case, that, that as we willfully surrender our lives to him as we willfully submit to his transforming hand that there's a miraculous transformation that comes about in each of our lives. It's what we call growth. We want to grow in our relationship with Christ. All of this is by that power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We wrapped up last week by looking at what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. In verse 30, by choosing not to put on the new man and and to go back to the old ways. Uh, recipe for disaster. It, it's just, if you want to have a difficult life, try to live carnally and spiritually at the same time. It, it's oil and water. It does not work. Again, I mentioned these exhortations, and these are exhortations that he's doing. It's strong encouragement. That's what an exhortation is. They're imperatives. They are commands that he's issuing forth with. Yes, the response of my life to the grace of God is I want to live a life of obedience. I want to live a life that's pleasing in his sight, even though he's already pleased with me. I'm not trying to earn brownie points with God. I want to live a life that's productive in the kingdom. In verses 31 and 32, we read, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He puts an emphasis as he wraps up chapter 4 on forgiveness. Why? Because we need forgiving. <laughs> we need to be forgiven as we walk, as we go along. This, this earth is broken and, and this life is broken. And, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic, just being realistic. <laughs> if you don't believe me, turn on the news. But I mean, things are broken. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And that fallen nature that we have, that old man that he talks about here, is constantly trying to express himself. 
We need to receive God's forgiveness when we recognize that, when he puts his finger on that. We need to turn from that. We need to be in a posture of saying, Lord, in humility, I come to you and and I acknowledge that I was wrong in that, perhaps in major ways, perhaps just something that you said, but that we have to have lives that are marked with forgiveness, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Paul, interesting, this isn't just the only place that Paul talks about these things uh, in the New Testament. He, he has similar things to say to the Colossian church. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, we read this. Therefore, as the elect of God, that's you and I, if, you're, if you belong to Christ, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. There's that, that term, put it on. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. There's Again, there's that aspect of forgiveness, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Again, an imperative. These are very strong words. There's a very strong tone in, in, in Paul's words, and it comes through translated from Greek into English. He says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect, is is the bond of perfection. So we're going to look at that this morning. As we go through, we're going to look at in chapter five, uh, what it is to imitate God uh, as as beloved children. Uh, In both of these passages, Paul is pointing to the reality that now, that now that our lives are aligned to the things of God, uh, that we assume divine, not divine, uh, we're going to look at attributes, the, who God is, what he's about. And, and that I mentioned last week briefly that God has attri- things that are attributable to him, to who he is and what he's about. And that as we're looking now in verse one, he says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children or beloved is how that translates children. He says, be imitators. Uh, he's using this commanding tone, and, and he's commanding those who follow God to imitate God. I, I came across a, a fun illustration as I was studying for this. Uh, I don't know if you folks have heard of G. Campbell Morgan. He's one of my favorite guys. I love reading his stuff, uh, theologian from you know 100-some years ago. Uh, this is... It, G. Campbell Morgan was was present during the Great Welsh Revival of 1904. And this is an eyewitness report uh, that he wrote about during that revival. He said, the, horse, the horses are terribly puzzled. <laughs> he says, a manager said to me, the haulers are some, very, some of the very lowest, the guys that drive the horses. He says, they have driven their horses by obscenity and kicks. Now... They can hardly persuade the horses to start working because there is no obscenity and no kicks. The transforming work of God in people's lives. So as we are looking at a transformed life, he says, therefore, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, allowing the work of Christ to transform our hearts and to govern our actions. That's the point. When he says, be imitators of God, here in verse 1 of chapter 5, 
Uh, interesting word. Yes, it's two letters in English, but it's a, it's a little bigger word with a broader meaning in Greek. What, and, and the tense that he says it in, he says, become imitators of God. That's how that translates. Actually, the tense is a present imperative tense. What that means, you don't have to be a Greek scholar. I'm not, but I know how to read my lexicon. But what he says is become and keep on becoming imitators of Christ. This is a continual process that he's bringing forth here. This isn't just a one-time deal. Oh, I read that, so I'm going to imitate Christ. No, he's talking about a life. This is the nuts and bolts of being transformed. This is how we go about it. This is what chapter 4, those things that we just looked at and what we've been looking at for weeks, this is how it is expressed in our lives. He's saying, I want you to become in a present imperative, imperative sense, imitators of God. Now, the word imitators is an interesting word. The, the Greek word is mimetes. And it's where we get the word mime. Very interesting. A mime is one who acts a part with mimic gestures and actions. You've, you've probably seen a mime over the years on television or at a theatrical production or whatever, usually dressed up with a white face and, you know, white gloves and, and he'll go and he'll act out the part that he has. He doesn't say anything, but he's mimicking by gesture, gestures and actions the person that he wants to portray. It's no mistake that this word is used here because it's one thing to talk about God's love. It's another thing to mimic God's love. It's another thing for that to be walked out. There's that word again, walked out in our lives. So don't talk about it. Live it express it, is what's being intimated with this word. Don't tell everybody that you have it. Show them that you have it. Do as God does. That's what he's saying here. It's why we talk about here that we're learning to think like Jesus, because that's our point. That's our purpose. We want to mimic. We want to imitate Christ. We want to imitate God. We want to imitate. Have you ever seen a father with a kid and 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 maybe the father will fold his arms and the, the, the little kid will fold his arms and the dad will lean a certain way and the kid will lean a certain way. He, he, that's sort of the picture here. He's talking about a father with a child. Um, and as we do that, as we learn more about God, we're able to more accurately mime God or imitate God in our lives. When he talks about as dear children, the Greek word is agapetos. Uh, and, and it's interesting. It's a derivative of the word agape, which is sacrificial love. It's the deepest form of love. Uh, literally, this is a love that's called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object of that love. So when he talks about us being dear children, beloved children is more accurate. He's talking about the love of God that motivates him by the preciousness of his people, by, by how precious you are, by pre- how precious I am in his sight. That's a, that's, that's a deep, sacrificial, very special kind of love. It's not a love that's born of human emotions. 
We've got to understand that God's love is far more developed than any love. We tend to put love on, on we, we elevate love to the romantic. That's not God's love. God's love is a love that is, is just by his very nature that is sacrificial. Uh, and we'll look at that as we go here. It, it, interesting, this is the same word, this, this agapetos, it's the same word that John uses or that Matthew uses or the other disciples that in, the, in the Gospels when they talk about Jesus going, yeah, not John, because it doesn't show his baptism. When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and when he comes out of the water, uh, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son uh, in whom I am well pleased. It's the same word. So the same word that the father uses for Jesus is the same word that Paul now uses talking about the love of God towards us as beloved children. You know, there's a principle that you will, you will, as you go along, you will begin to act like the one that you worship. The one that you esteem higher than any other, you will begin to take on their attributes. So my wife and I were joking the other day, we were at her parents' house, and, and I said, she's beginning to look like me. <laughs> Which, God forbid, I, I don't want my wife, she's very pretty and I'm not. But the point is, is that you begin to emulate the people and those that are, you're around that you're closest to. That's the point of this passage. Uh, when he talks about children here, uh, that word, and we're just taking apart verse one here, and we're going to get into, we're going to take off in a, a direction here in a minute. Uh, but it, it's talking about not children generically, um, like the children on the playground. This is a word that indicates immediate offspring. All right? That's important. Because the reference here is that you are the immediate offspring of God. And, and as we think about and we consider our father, that the, the, what's being said here is that we want to act like dad. Uh, the, the slide that uh, we have for this morning's service shows a father's hands cupping a, a, a child's hands and the child is holding a heart. And, and, and when I came across that photo, when I was making that up, it was like, oh, this is just perfect because it just shows in, in, in photo, in, in photographic form, it shows the point that's being made here to be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, he now and forever sees us as his own sons and daughters because we're eternally in Christ, in his son. So what he's saying in verse one, as we've taken this apart, he's saying, be and keep on being those who mimic God as a beloved child imitates their father. That's beautiful. That's, I mean, there's, there's tenderness in that. There's intention, there's purpose in that. Verse two, he says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. There's that sacrificial love coming into play for a sweet-smelling aroma. The word here, again, it's agape. It's, it's that love that is unlike any other. If you look in the New Testament, you see the different words for love. Uh, that there, There's storge, which is a family love. It's the kind of love that 
uh, I have for my kids, that my kids have for me, or, uh, and, and then you know, there's eros, which is physical love, and when that's perverted, it becomes something completely different. That becomes porneia. Uh, but then there's also Philadelphia, that's a brotherly love, but there's agape love, and, and agape love says, I'm placing you ahead of me. I'm putting your interests ahead of my own. I'm esteeming you as more important than myself, as the Bible tells us. And that's exactly what God did. He uses Jesus here, his sacrifice. That's exactly what God did when he sent his son to die on the cross for us. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends, the Bible tells us. So to walk in agape love is to walk sacrificially. That's the point. Uh, and, and, and Paul is here, he's giving us the ultimate example in Jesus and the cross. I think about when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane there in the Gospel of John, when the soldiers came and, and the, 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 the priests, the, the religious guys came and the soldiers, and, and he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And there he uses the, the covenant name of God. He says, the text says, I am he, but no, he says, I am. And at that word, the whole Roman garrison was knocked over. He knocked them all down. And it says, and they bound him with rope, but essentially what he was doing was signing up. He was saying, here, you're not taking me by force. I just showed you. I have the power to do an end run on this anytime I want. But the great sacrifice, the offering and sacrifice to God, the sweet-smelling aroma of his sacrifice is what Paul is talking about here, where Jesus essentially volunteered. He signed up for the cross. Why? Because he loves you. He loves me with a love that, that is just overwhelming to try to understand. And what he's doing is he's exhorting us to walk in that kind of love, that sacrificial love, that love that says, you're more important than I am. I'm going to take the form of a servant. I'm going to go low. I'll tell you, folks, this is the fuel that the kingdom of God runs on. It's not deep theological things. that We're going to look some, at some deep theology here in a few minutes, but, but it's not all of that. It's the simplicity of love, of sacrificial, others-centered love. Because we don't, by nature, that old man doesn't want to sacrifice. That old man wants to take what's mine. That old man wants to express himself. Be at the top of the heap. Work your way up. All of that. And Paul here is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works in the kingdom. This is one of those principles that's the opposite of the way that the world runs. He's saying sacrifice. Put the interests of others ahead of your own. Look out for their well-being. Look out for their good. Question. Why does Paul switch here from God to Christ? Because he's talking about in verse 1, imitate God. And, and he says, in walk in love, as Christ also has loved us. He's using both examples. And the answer to that simply is that Jesus is a chip off the old block. <laughs> You've got to understand the nature of God, the Trinity of God, that it is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not. They're three distinct persons, but 
They share the same attributes. They are equally, co-equally God. And so if you want to tell someone you need to imitate God, it's the same as saying imitate Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we read this, God, who at various times in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. There's that co-equality coming in. Who being the brightness or the radiance of his glory, the outshining of God's glory is Jesus, and the express image of his person or his nature upholds all things by the word of his power. That's a beautiful passage. One of my favorite, well, I have a lot of favorites. But the point is in that is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are co-equal. They share the same divine attributes. We're going to talk about attributes in a minute here. In John chapter 14, Jesus speaking, he says, if you'd have known me, you would have known that my, you'd known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and you've seen him. Philip, inquisitive one, he said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's sufficient for us. We'll be good. Show us, show us the Father. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> you know, you're speaking strange things again that we don't understand because he was always, you never knew what was going to come from him next. <laughs> I can only imagine what it would have been like to be part of that original 12 because Jesus acted and spoke in ways that were completely foreign to them much of the time. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Co-equal. Jesus is God and he represents God to man. Represents God. He is God. It's not just that he represents, that he is God. So when he says to be imitators of God, you got to understand, folks, this is a major theme of the New Testament. I'm going to go through a list of scriptures here. You can write them down if you want, or you can catch this on audio or video later or whatever. But in 1 Peter 2.21, Peter writes, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We've, just, we've been talking about that. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Imitate God. John chapter 13, verses 12 to 15. So when he had washed their feet, this is Jesus in the upper room, and taking his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know uh, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And get this, he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Imitate Christ. John thirteen thirty four a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you should also love one another. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. 
First John chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There are others, but just to give you a sampling, this is a major theme that runs throughout the New Testament. This isn't just something that is mentioned here in Ephesians and it's gone. This is something that is God's revealed will for you and for me, that we learn about our, our master, that we understand our master, and that as we go along, we become more like him. We imitate him. We consider him in our thoughts, words, and deeds. That's a transformed life. Do you understand why Paul is going here with this? He's talking about transformation. He's talking about growing in Christ. He's talking about putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And this is part of what it looks like. So question, how do we do this? All right, you, you told me what we need to do, but how, Pastor John? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I want to start with it. The fact that there is a good way to want to be like God. <laughs> there's a really bad way to want to be like God. Uh, in Genesis 3, there's an example of the, the worst way of wanting to be like God. This is part of what, part of what Satan tempted Eve with. He, when she reached out and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent's promise is that if she did, she would become like God. Tragically, of course, we know that was a lie. And yet here in Ephesians 5, Paul is actively encouraging Christians to be like God. So how do you reconcile that? He's telling us here, be imitators of God. So which is it? Are we forbidden from seeking to be like God, which is what Genesis 3 uh, condemns and seems to imply? Or are we commanded to be like God, as Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5? The answer to that is both. It's not either or. We're forbidden from trying to be like him in the sense of they were looking at becoming as God. And that's not a good thing. He will share his glory with no other. So to want to be like God in that respect is absolutely forbidden. What he's saying here is to be like God. In, in what God, we want to, I want to look at, and we're going to look the rest of this message this morning and next week at the character and the nature of God. Because how can you imitate somebody that you don't know anything about? I don't know nothing about it. So what am I going to do? You know, but the point is, is God's word has the answers. He has what are known as communicable attributes. I'm going to trip over that word, I swear, every time. Well, I'm not going to swear. But he also has incommunicable attributes. I talked about it briefly last week. We're going to go in depth on that. Not in depth. If I went in depth, every one of these attributes we could spend several weeks on. But I want to give you a sampling of these attributes of God. You've got to understand that we're talking about the character and the nature of God. The nature of God is who he is. The character of God is how he is. You understand the difference? When You, you may have heard that. It's, it, this is theology, folks. I know I'm going to get kind of off onto some, some deeper theological things here, but I encourage you, track with it, check the, take in the message again, 
whatever you need to do, because this is really important stuff. And it's understanding who God is in order to be able to imitate God. It just goes, it stands to reason. What we're going to look at for the rest of the time that we have this morning is the incommunicable attributes of God. Well, why? We're talking about imitate God, and you're going to tell us all the ways not to. That doesn't mean they're bad things. It's really important that we understand who God is. It's really important that we understand the majesty of God, because the incommunicable attributes of God totally depict his majesty. They depict his glory. They depict his greatness. They depict his separateness from us as creator and as sovereign in the universe. You've got to understand these are not bad things. They're, they're, we're, we're taking a, a <laughs> this is a major rabbit trail. All right, I confess. But folks, we need to understand the attributes of God. Communicable attributes of God are those that humans can possess. But to a finite extent, you've got to understand, our lives are tainted by sin. They're tainted by this old man. And, and so that's why this life is a journey. This walk of faith is a journey. And, and we will not get there during this life. Does that mean that it's a futile endeavor? No, not at all. What it means is that as disciples, that we're apprentices, that, that we're, I served as an apprenticeship in, in sign painting a zillion years ago. And, and I, I, I served with a guy who was over me. He was the journeyman. I was the apprentice. And it was learning all of his ways as he communicated those to me so that I could become proficient in what I was doing. And the point I'm making is you will never become absolutely proficient in these things, in the, the communicable attributes of God in this life. But these are good things. They're ways that God expresses himself in us and through us because they shape our lives. As we look at the incommunicable attributes, uh, these attributes are exclusively his. He doesn't share them with us. Humans can't share the incommunicable attributes that are connected with deity, with divinity. It's not possible. And he doesn't like it. (laughs) But we want to understand the God that we serve. Uh, Again, Adam and Eve in the garden, that's what, that's the, the bent that they had when they believed the lie that you can be as God. It was the incommunicable attributes of God that Satan sought when he fell from heaven and that he was leading man down the same path when he tempted Adam and Eve. So as we look at these, uh, communicable and incommunicable attributes, You've got to understand that as far as the communicable ones that were created, created in the image of God, there are echoes of his attributes in our lives that we share with him. And he, that's part of his sanctifying, his transforming work is making us more like him. But I want to begin with incommunicable attributes because again, these just, they just so magnify the Lord. And I pray you're blessed. I pray you're as blessed as I was as I was putting this list together. Because uh, just considering who God is, to me, it just blows my mind. I, I don't know how. I, I get to the point, I feel like the psalmist. I, in that psalm, that he says, it is high, I cannot attain it. Such knowledge is just too wonderful to me, for me. I, I, if I rise up into heaven, you're there. If I descend to the lower parts of the earth, you're there. And 
I'm just, I, and what the psalmist is saying is that in our vernacular, this just blows me away. This is just wonderful, wonderful stuff. So I pray that as we look at God, as we look at the nature of God and the character of God, then his nature is primarily what we're looking at here. He doesn't share his nature with others, but he does share his character. He shares moral attributes. That's what we'll look at next week. We've got a whole list of them that we're going to go through, and we're going to go to different parts of the Bible and all of that, all connected back to what Paul says here in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. My prayer is, is that we will more accurately understand the God that we know and love and serve so that we can more accurately represent him to a fallen world. That's part of the work that he's doing. That's part of his purposes in our lives. The first of these incommunicable attributes is that God is infinite. The infinite nature of God simply means that God exists outside of and is not limited by time or space. Infinite simply means without limits. That God is infinite. He is infinite in every way. And when we look at the... The reason I start with this attribute, guys, is that as we look at the attributes of God, you've got to realize that when we talk about God being holy, He is infinitely holy. And we'll get to holiness next week because that is a communicable attribute. That doesn't mean it's lesser. It means it's one that he shares with man. But when we look at that, he is is moral perfection as relates to infinity. That's what holiness is. So we've got to understand that God is these things as relates to infinity, that he is infinite. He is without bounds. He is without beginning. He is without end. He's not limited by time and space. He owns them. That's part of his creation. In Psalm 90, I'm going to give you one scripture for these. There's a number of scriptures that you could go to. I I did some searching and I came up with one that I thought best illustrated these attributes. Like I said, there's a a, a lot of, of scriptural background to each of these. But in the interest of time, I don't want to run too late. Uh, We'll look at one that illustrates the attribute. So looking at God being infinite, in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. You're infinite, is what the psalmist is expressing. The second one we want to look at here is that God is self-existent. By definition, God is never in need of anything outside of himself. Okay, and I know circuit breakers start to pop with me. I mean, I start, (laughs) smoke starts coming out my ears. I start thinking about these things and running them out. It's like, wow, this is some amazing stuff. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. He exists because he exists. He always has and he always will. He is self-existent. He doesn't need us. Everything he does is because of who he is, not because he lacks anything. Rather, we need him. All that God does towards us, he does because of what we need, not because he needs. He is self-existent. He exists that he exists. When he gave his covenant name to Moses there during at the, in front of the burning bush, Moses said, well, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? And, and God gives him his covenant name. He says, you go tell Pharaoh that 
I am that I am sent you. Self-existent. He exists because he exists. He is everything. He fills it all. We'll look at that too. In Acts chapter 17, Paul in his great sermon on Mars Hill in Athens says this in verses 24 and 25. He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He's self-existent. Oh, I wish I could spend more time on these. I I just want to, but we don't have the time this morning. The next is is an attribute of God called simplicity. That does not mean by any stretch that God is simple. (laughs) But he's not in a constant state of trying to juggle or balance the rest of his attributes. That's not who he is. He's not saying, well, do, am I good or am I sovereign? Am I merciful or am I just? You know, no, he's not trying to balance that. He's, he, he has simplicity as part of his nature. All of his glorious attributes are essential to himself. That's what it means. They're not something he does or aspires to. Rather, they're simply who he is. God is not divided into parts. One God. And all of his attributes, folks, you got to understand, and again, these are, these are, when we're talking about an infinite God and we are finite people, you can go so far in your consideration and go so far in your grasping these concepts and these, these realities about God before you get to the end of your understanding. And, and that's okay. He's given us enough. I, I don't, I can't think in infinite terms. I'm not an infinite being. I could get into a whole thing on immortality versus infinite, but because we're immortal if you belong to Christ, but you're not infinite. But the point is here, you're not eternal. You're, it, uh, yeah, I'm really resisting a rabbit trail right now. But these are not things that he does. They're, they're who he is. This is the essence of who God is. All of his attributes are functioning as relates to infinity all at the same time. And and that's who he is. In Romans chapter 11, verses 34 to 36, we read, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him? For of him, for of him, and through him, and to him, are all things. Figure that one out. Yeah. <laughs> you can take the rest of the, the rest of the day and, and just look at that one verse. And for me, uh, this just blows me away. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Is what Paul says there in Romans. He, he says, of him, through him, and to him is everything. The, the point there. Uh, is, is when we're looking at the simplicity of God. He's integrated. The fourth here we want to look at is the immutability of God. Uh, God will never change. You know, this is one of the most comforting attributes of God that I see as I, as I look at things in my own life, that he is unchanging. If he 
could change, he wouldn't be God. It's not within his nature. He's immutable. His purposes and his being remain constant from eternity past to eternity future. In, in, in getting into eternity, just understand it's not a whole bunch of days. It's, it's just to, to just be. <laughs> He's immutable. In James chapter 1, verse 17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Listen to this. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's immutable. He does not change. So are his promises, and this is why it's so comforting to me, folks, are his promises that I have taken myself, I mean, in God's word, there's over 3,000 promises in this book. So are his, his promises sure and steadfast and reliable? You bet. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The next thing we want to look at is the sovereignty of God. And this is something that we run into a lot in our lives. When I pray for healing for someone, I pray believing because I know God can heal. And that's what we're told to do, to pray believing. And I've learned over the years to always give room. And it's not a cop-out. It's just knowing God. To always give room for the sovereignty of God. He is the one who will sovereignly choose to heal or not. And he always heals, but sometimes he uses death to take away that final disease, which is death itself. I mean, he, he always does. But to heal in this life is something that I, I am absolutely submitted to the sovereignty of God. I don't feel like I've failed if I pray that God would heal someone, and he doesn't. I remember when my son called and told me that he had COVID-19. And believe me, my prayer life got pretty intense there <laughs> right away because he was getting worse. He went into pneumonia. He was going downhill fast. Praise God, he got medication that took it and all of that. But the point is, is that I loved. he loves the Lord. And he said, Dad, I have a total peace about this. I have a settled peace in my heart. Please don't worry, dad. And I said, yeah, right. It's easy for you to say you're the one that has a disease. But he said, really, I know the God that I love and that I serve, and he's sovereignly going to allow me to get through this and heal me. Or the worst thing is he'll do is he'll take me home. The point is, is there's great comfort that can be found in understanding in walking in the knowledge that God is sovereign. He's in complete control. You can rest in this truth, no matter what you're going through. He's not unaware, and he's not helpless. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, we read, Remember the former, former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He's sovereign. I, I, very rudimentary uh, uh, presentation of this. You guys have heard it before. If you want to understand the sovereignty of God, understand it, it, that it's his ball and it's his ball game and he invites you to play. You don't get to make the rules. He does. He's sovereign. But you got to understand that he is infinitely sovereign 
and simultaneously infinitely loving. And so as you reconcile that, he loves you. And that he sovereignly is allowing something to go on in your life doesn't mean he's mad at you. I talked about that last week. And it grieves my heart when I hear Christians say, I think God's mad at me because look at what I'm going through. No, he's sovereign. He's not going to do it the way that you or I think he should do it. That doesn't mean that he stopped loving you. It doesn't mean that he's punishing you. It means that he's working way ahead of you, way ahead of me. We don't understand the sovereignty of God at work often in our lives. Yeah, there are times over the years where I'll be going through something and and I'll get to a point as I go down the road a bit and I'll go, oh, that's what you were doing. It's because of his sovereignty. It's not in the contract, folks, for him to tell us what he's doing. To have that as an expectation is an unrealistic expectation. He is the Lord and there is no other. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. They're beyond our finding out, the Bible tells us. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't intimately know what you're going through. And sometimes it hurts. Living on a fallen planet, living in evil days, living in an evil world, there are things that happen. There are things that come against us. He sees it. He understands it. He's working out his purposes in your life through it. Even when and especially when it hurts, we need to be mindful of that. He's not doing it to punish you or he's not some evil ogre of a God that stands in the corner going, ha, 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 look at what they're going. No, it's not. He's compassionate, merciful, loving, kind. That's the God that we know. That's the God that uh, is found here in the words of Scripture. The sixth thing we look at here is the omnipresence. We're going to get into the omnis now. Omni means all. Uh, And so when we look at the omnipresence of God, it means that he's all present. Um, He is, and and this is is one of those mind benders, guys. Folks, I'll tell you, you try to figure out God being omnipresent. Good luck with that. If you figure it out, let me know. (laughs) Because uh, he is present everywhere in every dimension simultaneously. There's nowhere in the universe, and, and, you know, scientists keep telling us how big the universe is because they get better telescopes. And, and, and folks, it's not that the universe keeps growing. It's that man's understanding of the universe keeps creeping out there. It's like he, he fills all in all. He's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. And there's some new agey stuff that's connected to that that I'm not going to take the time to go into. Understand that he is spirit. He is not limited by time. He is not limited by space, that he is all present. And and the nature of spirit is what that's about. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, we read, he says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Yeah, he does. He's omnipresent. Connected to that, there have been times in my life where I have become woefully aware that he's omnipresent. The Bible tells us that he sees the hidden things. 
uh, the old saying, you can run, but you can't hide. He sees it. When people's lives are in compromise, part of the self-deception is that, well, it's just me here. No, it's not true. He sees it all. What's amazing, what's remarkable is he sees it all and he never endorses sin, but he chooses to love you. That's why the Bible tells us the kindness of God that leads a man or a woman to repentance, to change their mind about him, to understand that he sees it and he loves me. Not endorsing it, but he loves me enough to pull me out of that, to make me conscious of the fact that he, that nothing escapes his notice. When Jeremiah was writing these things, things were a mess in his day. And God was asserting, I see the mess, Jeremiah. I'm with you. He's omnipresent. The seventh thing we look at here is omnipotence or omnipotence. He's, he's all powerful. He has the power to do anything that he wills to do. He's all powerful. He has, he's not limited in power. Uh, in Psalm 33, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. When we looked at it in Hebrews, where it says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. It's talking about the omnipotence of God. He's not limited in power. I remember in Bible school, we would talk about, you know, sort of dumb jokes about things like that. And, and you know, one of the things was, can God make a, a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And it's like, get out of here. The point is, is that he has the power. He has all power. The miraculous is what we look at in our realm, in this finite realm, in this temporal realm. We look at the miraculous when God flexes his power and he does that to show us that he's God. Jesus, whenever he was doing miracles, using the omnipotence that, that he has and had, would bend the laws of nature, the laws of physics, to demonstrate that he is God. He, this is something, the omnipotence of God came into play a lot. He's all powerful. He, Jesus had the ability to read men's minds. He had the ability to raise the dead. He had the ability, and fill in the blank, folks, he had the ability to fill the net with fish and on and on. It's because he's all powerful. He's not limited in power. When he demonstrates his power, the point for us is that we acknowledge who's at work. That's what Jesus was doing. We're told in the book of Acts that he demonstrated himself through signs and wonders and miracles, but they were to attest to the fact that he is God. That's the point. The eighth one we're going to look at here, the last one is omniscience. That means he's all-knowing. He doesn't not know something. <laughs> Wrap your mind around that. He knows all things. Past, present, future. Because for him, there's no past, present, future. He is. As he told Moses, I am that I am. I exist that I exist. So when we try to understand these things about God, when we try to understand 
This is the God that we love and that we serve. Yes, it is. This is the nature of God. This is who he is. Next week, we'll look at how he is, those communicable attributes, and how that impacts us. In Romans chapter 11, talking about the omniscience of God, Paul, the apostle says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You can't get there from here. I love the fact that we are progressively learning more about God in our lives. And that's part of his revealed will. It's part of what he wants to do. He wants us to know him, to understand him to the, to, to the length that we're able. And then as we look at these communicable attributes, to be more like him, to imitate him, to mimic him, to mime him to a fallen world. We're going to look at next week, we're going to look at nine attributes, communicable attributes. We're going to look at holiness. Bible tells us he wants to share that holiness with us. We're going to look at wisdom. Look at truth. And these are divine attributes, but they're ones that are communicable. They're ones that he shares. We're going to look at love. We're going to look at faithfulness, righteousness, justice. He's just. We're going to look at mercy and grace. Those are the things that Paul here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and when he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, those are the things that we put on. Those are the things that as the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our hearts in increasing ways, because we want to grow, that we look more like him, we act more like him in these ways. And we're going to get into that next week. But we're out of time this morning. If you don't know Christ this morning, perhaps you've been looking at this and you're coming to some understanding about some things. This is all from God's word. This is not Pastor John's opinion. This is not stuff that I sat in my room and cooked up. (laughs) This is from his word. This is divinely inspired stuff. I want to know God more. I want to understand him more. And if you've never come to an understanding of who he is, It starts, what we looked at in verse 2 here, as he talks about the sacrifice of his son. It starts there. That you would be in a place, if God's touching your heart, that you might uh, surrender your heart to him. Give him your heart. Let the weight of your life down on Jesus. Because when he went to that cross, when, when they arrested him, and he let them arrest him, And they took him off for six illegal mock trials. And then they took him out to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And they put him on that cross. As he hung there and his life drained out. At one point, the father separated from the son. We don't understand it completely. But there was a tearing in God as Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that as he wore your sin and my sin, anything short of perfection, anything short of divine perfection is sin. The broadest definition. As he wore our sin, that he became the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if you don't know him this morning, he wants to take away your sins. 
He wants to bring you into fellowship with him. He wants to bring you into relationship, a precious, secure relationship. And you do that through praying something like this. Uh, Lord, I know I've lived my life away from you. I've lived my life even in rebellion towards you. I've pushed back on you. And I see the futility of my own ways, of my own life outside of you. And God, I, I understand that Jesus died for me. He didn't just do it to perform an event. He died to give me, to give you life. And, and God, I, I, I get that my life doesn't work and I need it to work. These are really troubling days. These are frightening days. These are uncertain days. There's certainty. There's security. There's meaning. There's depth. There's mercy and compassion in coming to Jesus with an open heart and saying, please forgive me for my sins and fill me. And if that's a prayer that you're praying, have confidence that that's what he wants to do. That's his revealed will, is to draw all men unto himself, is what the Bible tells us. Praise God. I would invite you to call me, call our church, talk to a friend you might know that's a believer, but make it public. Make it real. Don't pray that prayer and then go off and figure, oh, well, that was just an emotional response. He takes it seriously and he'll work in your life and he'll fill you with his love. That's his purpose for us. As we learn more and more what it is to walk with him, and next week as we look at these communicable attributes, these things that who God is that he shares with us, my prayer is that our lives would be touched and enriched. My prayer is that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, would cause us to grow, that he would continue to transform our lives for his glory and his purposes. That's our heart's desire. That's the desire of every Christian who wants to go deeper with him, who wants to grow. And in doing so, he simply says, show up. He says, just come. I love Matthew 11. Come to me when you're weary, you're heavily laden, when you're just burdened down. I'll give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh God, I just... Even teaching this this morning, my heart just is overwhelmed at looking at who you are, at your majesty, at your greatness, at your holiness, at your mercy towards us. Your